Welcome to All Your Favorite Music is Probably, where we take a themed dive into popular songs and unearth the connections like underground magnets. I'm your host, Mark Montgomery French, music culture writer, film composer, and burrito enthusiast. Today's theme is All Your Favorite Music is Probably Unstreamable New Wave Classics. And my guest today is game composer, musician, and, as I believe, international jewel thief, Tracy Bush. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, don't tell the FBI where I am. Absolutely not, unnamed friend number five. <laughs> so I don't know if you heard about this, but De La Soul last week had an Instagram Live where uh-huh. they announced that they have control of their masters again. Hey! And they'll be putting out all of their early catalogs sometime around November. Oh, fantastic. Because it's never been available streaming. And I think yeah. it all went out of print about 10 years ago. So if you want to play any of those songs, it's like, well, you either have them or you pay a king's ransom on Discogs <laughs> to get any of it. Or um, pour through... Uh, early 90s Napster. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. So that's, and, and Aaliyah, I believe her catalog's coming out soon. They've said uh-huh. that before. We'll see. But we're starting to, for the most part, have all the big people have their material once again available in a streaming format. That's nice. Man. However, there's always the smaller acts, the ones who aren't quite as popular that I love and you love and many people love that the song's gone. It's just yeah. like, unless you happen to buy that, that uh, that single back in the day, <laughs> you, you you don't have it. And one of them, oddly, is the 1986 version of Pretty in Pink by Psychedelic Furs. I find that shocking, by the way. Now, the sound, you can find the soundtrack on, let's say, Spotify, but that song's missing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Left of Center by Suzanne Vega and Joe Jackson, that's there. But for some reason, I assume it's rights. But since they named the movie after that song, you figure those rights would have been wrapped up. And to be clear, you can actually buy psychedelic furs like greatest hits or whatever. And it has a different version of pretty. It has the Pink, original. And which is a little raw. Uh, yeah. D- depending how you feel about it. Uh, some might say more true to the first sound. Uh, but I, I really like this version, though. I yeah. like this version of the. It's got good energy. I, 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 it's, it's, it's got a certain anima. I like what the drummer's doing a lot. I like that. I like the fact they did not try to smooth out Richard Butler's voice. I mean, it's still adding like the. Um, I've smoked a thousand Gatane cigarettes and now I'm going to sing kind of sound. Yeah, I don't think there's any other way you could get that. Guy to sing. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like. Just a chimney before each take. Right. Like, what are we singing again? <laughs> right, right. Pretty pre and pink. Right, I'll right. do it. Um, <laughs> with that, I will play for you the movie version of Psychedelic Furs, Pretty and Pink. Dreaming and sleep and her lovers walk through in their clothes. 
And that was the 1986 movie remake of Pretty in Pink from the movie Pretty in Pink by Psychedelic Furs. You know what I liked about the 80s in general is that uh, there was such a great marriage of music and movies. And let's say you're a producer. I'm a producer. And, and you're, you're putting a soundtrack together for your movie. You want to get the kids in there. Or you just turn on MTV and you just wait for a little while and you're like that and them that them we want them to be the oh look the song's named pretty in pink that's perfect the movie's called pretty in pink yeah yeah let's get them <laughs> uh you know and it was always always great that you'd find these acts just showing up doing movie soundtracks for no reason they're just there yeah flesh for lulu i think ended up in some john hughes film and i'm like that's a deep cut of a new wave <laughs> band to be plastered across america yeah, I think it's different than what James Gunn does, though. Like, I mean, James Gunn, like, when he's writing a movie, he's clearly imagining the songs, like, being important to whatever's happening. Right, but, right. But, like, back then it was just like, ah, we need, like, an interstitial song. <laughs> and so, like, they're like, ah, Bowie. And, like, so here's Bowie yeah, all of a sudden yeah. out of nowhere. Just gonna work. I want to talk about the brilliant yet bizarre woman known as Nina Hagen. 
Oh, love Nina Hagen. And for those of you who have not heard Nina Hagen, just wait. She's coming up. Basically, she will go into an operatic riff and then grunt a lot. And then sometimes uh, rap between she, her native German and English. Depends what you get. And there's no one like her. And in 1983, she created a song called New York, New York. Not the one from the movie. But a different, to be clear. To be clear. But a different song called New York, New York. Produced by Giorgio Moroder, by the way. Oh, no kidding. Giorgio produced everything awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can tell on this song in particular, it's so well put together. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's 1983 and, and it's just, it's got like that 1987, 1988 production. Yeah, no, that's totally true. The song is about dancing in New York. It's about dance clubs. She names a list of clubs, Danceteria, Mud Club, which is probably unsurprising why it was a hit in the dance clubs, but it also happened to be a really good song. So I'm going to play for you. And again, this is unstreamable, maybe in Germany, in German, but not here in America. Nina Hagen's New York, New York.
was New York, New York by Nina Hagen. <laughs> Just craziness. See, I, I loved that in the 80s, you could just do crazy, 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 crazy stuff. And people would be like, sure, go ahead. Just do it. Yeah. Like, like you know, Klaus, you know, bringing in uh, Klaus Nomi kind of influences here with the operatic stuff. Just as you say, switching back and forth between England and German or English and German. And she she's so amazing. Like her and uh, what was the lady who did uh, New Toy? Lena Lovitch. Yes. Her and Lena Lovitch always thought were kind of like the 80s had to have them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they were so wild and unique. And compared to now, one would say unhirable. Like oh, sure. your, your voices are so specific. They, they, they sound more like instruments or more like percussion <laughs> or more yeah. like novelty and not... Let's be sweet and and generic. No one ever heard uh, a Nina Hagen or Lena Lovett song and went, "Oh, is that Barbara Streisand?" It sounds so close. <laughs> the tone. Wait, what kills me about it is that these were big labels putting out these bands. I mean, they weren't just like self-published, like little niche things that you find on Spotify or like on my SoundCloud or anything like that. But it's just, it's just like literally. Like, you know, hey, this is Polydor Records, and it's yeah. crazy. It must have been because, I mean, if I were a record person at that time, maybe it's like, look, we're going to put the Scorpions, we're going to make enough money this quarter, so let's put out Lena Lovitch, or let's put out Nina yeah, Hagen like to, to balance it out, or something. Because, yeah, it, it's kind of un, un it's unbelievable. That's the word I'm looking for. Genuinely, un- in a genuine sense. So, as I look through these... I think I found some reasons why some of this material isn't available. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's because I don't think the artist themselves really cares about it, which is odd because I love all of this material. It's a guy sure. named Tim Scott. Tim Scott used to be in the Rock Hats back in the day, and Tim Scott had a big hit on alternative radio called Swear around 1983. <laughs> Swear! Well, he, he's now moved into this gothic blues part of his life. Mm-hmm. And he literally has dismissed this song. He literally said, quote, this was my young and confused record. Sire heard it and offered me a deal. No use apologizing for such a thing. My mistake. Dude, it's a great song. Come on. I don't, you know, that everything has it's, to be super deep. It's so good. I mean, I, I know Alan Jorgensen tried to do the same thing <gasps> in, right. in the transition from old Ministry to new ministry, where old ministry was a lot more like, you know, hey, I'm Depeche Mode. Right. And then, like, instead, he's like, no, I'm angry with guitars. 
I, it's it's the same kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But this is a great song. Yeah. I don't know why you would want to. People liked I it. I would like it back. Um, and now I will play it for y'all. This is Swear by Tim Scott. Just 
And that was Swear by Tim Scott. If you thought you heard this song in a different realm, Sheena Easton covered it around 1983 or 4, which is funny because if you see any YouTube video, one of her background keyboardists, I swear to you, is Bruce Hornsby. No kidding! Way. <laughs> like American Bandstand, clearly Bruce. You know, live footage, clearly Bruce. I don't think he played in the record, but he definitely is behind her up for live stuff. I love Sheena Easton. This is what five foot tall little Scottish lady just out there covering weird, weird songs. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the thing I find that I think about when I hear a song like Swear, first of all, I, th- I think it's interesting because it's kind of got spiritual roots to who do you love? Yep. If you think about it, like there's thematically, it's got a lot in common with that, like, I'm weird and controlling, and here's the chorus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I always always think about whenever I hear songs like Swear, which, again, great song, a lot of fun, a little odd, but, you know, it was the 80s. Everything was was odd. (laughs) But I always always imagine everybody, when they're writing some of these songs, were like, that's weird, where that the person writing it is just going to write the best song of all time. Like, this is going to be I Will Always Love You. This is going to be Jolene. This is going to be, you know, of course, these are all Dolly Parton songs because Dolly Parton's amazing. Yep. But, you know, I can imagine the guy getting done writing this song and it's like, yeah, this is it. But as you say, like, Sire came back and they're like, oh, we like this. Yeah. So, yeah. I would say that it's so typical for a songwriter to have no idea what will be the song that takes them to the next level. Yeah. Depeche Mode will not perform People Are People. They're not in the same mindset they were. It was yeah. until Violator, their biggest hit in America, their only hit in America, and they can't relate to it anymore. So I don't know if they hate it, but you haven't heard it live in probably 30 years. And Billy Joel for years also wouldn't do uh, uh, My Life. He wouldn't do it for really? years and years and years and years. Oh, he hated it. Oh, wow. And, and, and like people would request it, and he would say, no, I don't want to do it. And I, I, I was actually at one show where he said, look, I've famously not done this show, this song for at least 15 years, but tonight I'm going to do it because re, they rearranged it. They, turned, oh, they made see. it more oh. tropical. And like he had, that's back when he had like that, that lady percussionist who was, was, was super cool. She had those timbales. Mm. Um, uh, it was the uh, Stormfront tour. Oh, okay. So I was actually having a conversation with somebody before we talked, who back in the day, in the 80s, worked for an import record company. So they would import records from England to sell to Americans. Mm -hmm. Which is funny, because it dovetails into this next song, which is The Planet Doesn't Mind by Ex-Visitors. The Planet Doesn't Mind was a British single in 82 by a band called New Music. New Music is basically Tony Mansfield. Tony Mansfield's a producer. He produced the first version of Aha's Take On Me. He's he's a big he's a dude with a fair light in the early 80s. So you know he oh, got Oh, there you go. He got he got get around. So the song was super popular as an import on the West Coast of America. The store in San Jose, California called Star Records. They could not get enough of this 12-inch. So the owner said, ding, I'll just record my own version and sell it from my store. And You're kidding me. And so Diane Dragon, if you're still alive, congratulations. She found some people and made up a band called X Visitors. 
and recorded The Planet Doesn't Mind. And it was a huge hit in uh, clubs, uh, in alternative places. KROQ played it, The Quake. It was one of those songs that just kept going. And it basically was because it was hard to import stuff from the UK, which honestly is like the least lazy decision I've heard about music in a long time. (laughs) And on that note, I will play for you X-Visitors, The Planet Doesn't Mind. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. That was The Planet Doesn't Mind by the X-Visitors. So I like the use of vocoder in here, which later became such an 80s staple. I mean, I know it's no Roger Troutman in the zap, <laughs> but uh, I always liked the vocoder and the use of it here. But the some of these synth patches in that song are just, <laughs> they just kill your ears. And I, I, I you can tell that this guy just had a room full of just everything. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, press the button. Yeah, that, that. And it's just, that's, it's painful and annoying. It's like, yeah, let's put that in there. I found out that the ex-visitors, who basically existed for the purpose of one or two singles, kind of still exists. No kidding. Well, there were uh, two brothers called Rojas, and they released some other singles under that name, uh, kind of a Mexican, high-energy, Latin freestyle thing. But it sounds like some of the members are now in a wedding party band. So, in a sense, they're still around. That's awesome. Yeah, That's, I, right? I, I respect that in a way. I mean, you keep the group together, you end up playing state fairs and library openings and, you know, weddings and quinceañeras and stuff like that. Yeah, and honestly, with 2020 being what it was, anybody wants to pay you to play now, wonderful. Yeah, take that money. Take it. When I think of Devo, mm-hmm. I think of... A bunch of catalog not available on streaming, right? Anything from Enigma you can't find. I think some of the easy listening discs, hard to find. And anything from a soundtrack is just super difficult. So Dr. Detroit, granted, a movie no one loved. (laughs) (laughs) We all liked Dan Aykroyd. I think it was his first film after John Belushi died. And there Uh were some baby steps that had to happen before we got to Ghostbusters, right? He came back strong with Ghostbusters. He met his his wife, Donna Dixon, on that film, so good for him. And he continued his desire to throw musicians he likes into movies, because James Brown's in it. Is he? He is. Yeah, he was in Blues Brothers. It was, on the ca- it was on cable all the time in the 80s, but who remembers? But James Brown is in it, and Dan Aykroyd just loves music. Dan Aykroyd, for sure. no particular reason, threw Digital Underground into nothing but trouble. It didn't really fit the film, but he liked Digital Underground, so there they but, were. And, yeah, and, as, and well done, he. Well yes, done. yes. So Devo started to have placements, I think, probably Heavy Metal was probably the first Devo placement, right, with Working in a Coal Mine. And they do an original song, theme from Dr. Detroit, lots of bubbly sounds, and it's starting to, it's Devo as they are like stopping being weird and trying to make pop songs for real. I still like it. I think it's a fun song. It doesn't go on too long. And now it's vanished. The closest it's ever gotten to a re-release, 20 years ago, there was a really nice rhino box called Pioneers Who Got Scalped, and it collected all of Devo's ephemera, all of their B-sides, all of their soundtracks, and still just had, like, the dance version. So, unless you had the vinyl of this soundtrack from 83, it's gone. That's crazy. I know. Although, we have it for you today. So, you're gonna hear Devo's theme from Dr. Detroit. Don't you wonder why Life itself comes 
And that was the obscure, unstreamable, but for you, easy to listen to, Dr. Detroit by Devo. So let's say you're a producer. I'm a producer. Of the movies. Of the the movies. In the 80s. In the 80s. And you turn on the MTV and you see... You see Devo, and you're like, you know, I'm making a movie about Detroit. And what says Detroit more than Devo? You're right. I can't think of any one, two, five, twenty, thirty different bands on top of my head. <laughs> that what could- I love about this song is is if you have if you can rewind and listen to it again i i highly recommend you do but i want you to put yourself in the mindset if you are playing an nes platformer <laughs> and this song 100% predicts how video game music is going to start off and take off just lots of arpeggiations and crazy crazy quick here and gone attack sounds it's fantastic in that in that regard you have so nailed it oh my gosh well, that's how it should come back. It should just be like a, a downloadable ROM for a, for a Game Boy. And, uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> people will love it then. Sometimes, speaking of songwriting, you have a great song, but it's just not your time. Because songs come back later. They do. There's a song by Annie Lennox called No More I Love Yous. Fantastic song. International hit. Went top 20 in 10 countries. Well, the original sold, I think, Bupkis was the level that they mentioned. Uh, Does it, did it actually say that in, in Billboard, like like the yeah. song that says Bupkis? Bupkis yeah, no, it, it's, uh, you win Bupkis. That's, that's great. No, it's not. Yeah. The band was called The Lover Speaks, and they were, you'll get this, they were found by Dave Stewart of Eurythmics. Of all people. Of all people. And he was a big supporter. He got them helped them get signed. They released their first album, this sort of dream pop album, also called The Lover Speaks. And the whole album was based upon Roland Barth's A Lover's Discourse. Every song was about a different part of the fragmentation. Oh, yeah, these guys are heady. They could read. Wow. And the album did not do well. Uh, Co-produced by Jimmy Iovine, which is also interesting because it sounds nothing like Jimmy Iovine, right? Jimmy Iovine's about rock and roll. This is maybe... I don't know, 10 years past Born to Run, you know, so, uh, and it did not do well, and it just sort of slunk without a trace, and they released that song first in 1986, and nobody cared. My wife actually had a copy, when we got together, she had a, a not melted copy of this on cassette, and she would play it once in a while, again, it wasn't even available after 89, basically, it was just like deleted. Well, your wife has fantastic taste. I will let her know that. They did do a quick re-release on CD in Europe in 2015, which I bought for her. Even that, I think, out of print. I looked at Amazon. There's six copies left. That does not say, we are heartedly in print. No. So I will play for you this lovely, dreamy, original version of No More I Love Yous by The Lover Speaks.
Was that Eddie Lennox? No, it was not. It was the original, The Lover Speaks, and their version of No More I Love Yous. You know, I got to say, I like that version better. I genuinely prefer this to the Annie Lennox version, and I'll tell you why. Tell me why. It's, it's not the dude's kind of weird, tripped out 50s voice, because he <laughs> kind of has that kind of like, I'm a, I kind of want to be Elvis kind I'm in, of voice. I'm in Sun Studios. Yeah. But uh, it's just, it hits a little harder. It's it's a little less light and fluffy. It's got more oomph to it. And I don't know if that's Jimmy Iovine or whatever, but I, I just, I like this version more. I do too. And I don't know if it's because I heard it first, because I love me some Annie Lennox. So it's sure. not like I, 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 I would diss her in general. But yeah, something about it, I think it feels more melancholy. It's, it succeeds in the melancholiness. Maybe that's maybe that's it. It's got a kind of a Lord Byron, yeah, shirt open, you know, romantic poetry on Stowe Lake kind of vibe. That's totally what I meant to say. That is it, sir. At least they had a chance for the song to survive in some form or another. I sense a segue, Mark. However, Jimmy the Hoover did not have that chance. They are a short-lived band with <laughs> one hit. And to me, one big anchor. The anchor was that their manager was Malcolm McLaren. Who? Malcolm McLaren was the manager for Bow Wow Wow and the manager of Sex Pistols. And basically, if you want a short career in music business, you have Malcolm McLaren as your manager. Oh, that guy. Yeah. I know him through his clotheslines. <laughs> <laughs> through his big hats and gimp suits. Uh, um, so Jim of the Hoover was oddly inspired somewhat by Zambian music. The bass player was Zambian and the lead singer spent time as a youth in Zambia and they threw in some Zambian music into what would have been a normal new wave song and got their song tantalized into the top 20 in the UK and into the heads of happy dancing new wavers uh, on the West Indies coast of America in the early eighties. And then they had two of the singles that went way less well and they broke up. Well, also because the guy from Zambia was asked to provide a work visa. He said, what? And, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm here playing bass. They're like, yeah, I'm playing bass, man. I'm clearly working. I'm working. Exactly. It's like, you need to apply. He's like, I'm going home, but nothing else happened. And those singles are gone other than, you know, my house. I have one, but it's hard to play. So I can't just stream it for you, but I do have this show. So I will play for you Jimmy the Hoover's Tantalize.
And that was Jimmy the Hoover's Tantalize. It was produced, by the way, by Stuart Levine the same year he did the first Culture Club album. You can tell. You can you can see the through line. Right? Yeah. And uh, bullet clear mix and the bass is nice and, and prominent without that being overdone. That is a fantastic bass line. It is, it is so, especially for the time. You know, oh, yeah. There was not a lot of really heavy bass or, or that clear bass coming out of England. Maybe Duran Duran, but there was not a lot that said, let's, let's turn this up. And especially with that African feel, there's, there's nothing like that. Peter Gabriel starts to play around with it around this time, but yep. not really yep. seriously. No, I um, this actually reminds me a lot of uh, Salif Keita. Uh, yes. It sounds a lot like his, his later stuff. Yeah, actually, you're right. Ladies. He stole all of his music from Jimmy the Hoover. You heard it here first. Yeah, of all people. <laughs> like, he ripped it off from Malcolm McLaren. Like, he left Africa, went to, <laughs> went to England. He's yeah. like, oh, I like this, and then took it back to Africa. That, and that, like that, that. that Oh, that's a leaf. Now, this is a story about Richard Branson. Branson? Richard Branson, as you may have heard recently took Virgin Galactic, is that the name of his space company? Yeah, and yeah, went yeah, into whatever, Virgin, whatever. What they're always. calling, he went to inner space. He didn't really go to outer space. He went yeah, to, he kind of went to, like, he, like, could see outer space. Yeah, he was Ooh, like, oh, neat. and then came back. Well, one cannot say that Richard Branson lacks vision. And he decided to fund the film 1984 that was filmed in 1984, based on the book 1984 by George Orwell. Who died and, in 1984. Did he? No, I don't. Okay. That would be awesome, though, right? <laughs> That's awesome. So he really wants Eurythmics to do the score. Now, at this point, they're pretty huge, so it's a great pull. A couple of problems. Number one, they're not on Virgin Records, so there's an issue just trying to get permission. Number two, he didn't tell the director. <laughs> you think that might have been part of the, the whole theory, but so... They basically show up with this album, and the director's like, what the bleep is this? Because he had hired <laughs> Dominic Muldowney to do the score. So now there's a fight over how much of the material is going to be used. There's different cuts of the movie based upon the score. Subsequently, the album gets released kind of an RCA in America, but in Virgin in the UK, and it's still available in the UK, but it is gone in America. I think the other reason why it's not available is because it didn't sell anywhere near as well as Touch, which came before it, or Be Yourself Tonight, which came after it, because no radio station in America wanted to play the lead song because it was called Sex Crime. Now, you might assume, hey, everybody's <laughs> read the book. They understand Newspeak. They know what the, what's going on. But one has not thought about the mindset of an early 80s radio station in America. And so while that song was like a top 20 all over the world, it hit number 81 in America. <laughs> and I will play for you the worst showing rhythmic song for no good reason, Sex Crime 1984. Crime, crime. Take this for granted. Will your eyes open? 
And that was Eurythmics with Sex Crime 1984. So what you're telling me is that Richard Branson is a producer. Yes. And he's watching MTV. And he sees Eurythmics. And he's like, you know what I got to do? I got to get them in my movie. (laughs) But tying back to what happened earlier, Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart are sitting in their sitting in their studio they got a bunch of brand new gear that they've bought because of touch yep hey we got a sampler hey we got a vocoder what are we gonna do with this i don't know what happens if i just say sex crime and then just start pressing buttons (laughs) that's fantastic no one's done that before no one has and no one ever did after that Looking at you, Prince. <laughs> Looking at Bat Dance. <laughs> Tracy, thank you for being on my show. Mark, ha- thank you for having me. It's been great. And all of you listeners, please come back next week where we will unveil another fun theme. And thanks for all of you who actually have been going on to Apple Podcasts and saying, yes, I will subscribe. That makes a difference. So please, thank you for subscribing. And, hey, I have dates. My music course, The Completely Abridged History of Bay Area Music, is still online through August 31st. Don't worry if you haven't seen the other ones. We'll send you a video of ones you've missed. It's fantastic. And you can learn more from my Instagram and Twitter. My handle on both is Mr. French. That is M-R-F-R-3-N-C-H. It would be so much easier if we were an E, but I was not an early adopter of Instagram or Twitter. So I got MRFR3, the numeral three, NCH, kind of like Mr. French, kind of. Original music courtesy of Spiky Blimp. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. Originally broadcast on KACRLP Alameda. Underwritten by S.J. Harrison, voice and performance coach. S.J. Harrison helps professionals overcome their public speaking fears by teaching them voice and performance techniques. Gain public speaking skills through live online coaching from the founder of The Inhabiting Technique. Learn more at sjharrisoncoach.com.